everyone. How are we? Good, good to see all of you. My name's Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here for those that are new or visiting. So good to see all of you. I know Brian like celebrated all the VBS volunteers, but can we celebrate Mr. Brian Cobley this morning? That, that dude, he ran a student summer camp VBS and now this Arbor Kids Day and, and, and he's going on vacation tomorrow. So praise God. <laughs> for that, for him and his family. Um, Well, we are in the middle of a series. Uh, We're going through the Gospel of Mark, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out right now. Uh, We're in chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, um, and we're going to read through that right now. So if you could, would you please stand with me? We're going to read through this passage, and then we will um, learn what God has for us here. So verse 18 says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So they came to Jesus and said, Why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they do not fast. But the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and at that time they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the tear becomes worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this morning. We're thankful for all you're doing in our midst. Would you bless our time in your word? Would your spirit open our eyes and our hearts to what you would have for us and how you would call us to change today and become more like Jesus? We pray your spirit would be powerfully present in our midst right now. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You can take a seat. All right, so growing up in the late 80s and in the 90s, for me, Friday night was something special. Friday night was something special because in the Plants household in the suburbs of Chicago, it meant one of two things was going to happen. On most nights, we would find ourselves pouring into the living room, sitting on the couch, getting ready to watch ABC's Friday night programming block, TGIF. Anyone remember this, TGIF? Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. It's... Friday. And in my humble opinion, that program peaked uh, in the mid-90s with step-by-step Family Matters and Boy Meets World, okay? That was, that was as good as it could possibly get. That was, man, that was a good Friday night. But only one thing, only one thing could top that Friday night. And that was a family trip here to Blockbuster, <laughs> Right? To Blockbuster. Blockbuster was awesome. Nothing capped off a week like going to Blockbuster and walking through the aisles and scouring the shelves for that perfect movie. There was something so exciting and even empowering as like a seven-year-old to walk through and look through all the VHS tapes. And if you don't know what that is, whatever, okay? And and grabbing like Men in Black or Jurassic Park for the ninth time and trying to convince my parents that this is the movie that we should watch. Now, at the time, Blockbuster was the spot, wasn't it? I mean, they were everywhere. At their peak, Blockbuster had like over 9,000 stores worldwide, 
over 80,000 employees and was doing something like $5.9 billion of revenue. Blockbuster was this unstoppable force. It was like this cultural institution in our lives. And just a few years after that, there's one Blockbuster store remaining in the world. In Bend, Oregon, actually. Did you know that? <laughs> Bend, Oregon, the last remaining Blockbuster. And so listen, what, what, what could have caused such a crazy fall from like entertainment dominance to complete and total irrelevance? How could a cultural institution like Blockbuster have been completely wiped off the map? I think there's just one answer here, and that's this. The inability to adapt to change. The inability to adapt to change. We're not going to go into all the details, but you can kind of put the pieces together. Maybe you've heard the story yourself. But with the rise of the internet and, and streaming videos to our devices, it absolutely obliterated Blockbuster. They tried to catch up, but it was too little too late. And in 2010, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy, all because of an inability to adapt to change. Now, now, now the ability to, to adapt to change, the willingness to change, embracing change, these are really difficult things for, for organizations and for all of us to do. And all of us can look at our lives and, and, and we can clearly see different things in different ways in our lives that we want to change, but very few of us are willing to embrace change. Very few of us are willing to embrace change and walk through the transformative process in life to, to achieve change. Simply put, because change can be frustrating, right? Change can be hard. Change can be difficult. Uh, some guy named Jeff put it this way, change is not a four-letter word, but often our reaction to it is, right? And if you don't get it, ask your mom and dad. Um, so yes, change is hard. Uh, but what we see, not only from the example in, in the story of Blockbuster or a variety of other things, and in our text today is this. Embracing change is essential for growth. Embracing change in our lives is essential for growth. And as I mentioned last week, over the past couple of weeks, we are in the middle of a section in Mark that, that's a series of vignettes of conflict stories between Jesus and the religious leaders. And this is the third of five. We're right in the middle of these little stories, and we see what sets off this kind of mini conflict right in verse 18. Mark writes this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So they came to Jesus and said, why, why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your, your disciples, they, they, they don't fast? Why is that Jesus? And so in this incident, uh, we, we have two groups of people. We have John the Baptist and his disciples and the Pharisees and, and, and their disciples, and, and they're participating in this spiritual discipline called fasting. And we're actually going to dig deeper into this topic at some point next year. But, but all we need to know here about why the Pharisees and why John's disciples were fasting is this. Their specific focus for fasting was to hasten the day of salvation. And, and here's, here's what's meant by this. Remember, Israel has gone through multiple centuries of, of difficult 
times. Uh, they, they were in exile and captivity, and then they came back to their land, and as they were reestablishing their land, the Roman Empire was rising up, and they came in and took over and took control. And so some really serious, religious, committed people, what they would do, those people like the Pharisees and their disciples and John the Baptist and his disciples, what they would do is they would commit to fast in order to bring about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus arrives on the scene, he's super popular, and, 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 and they're watching him and, and his followers and his disciples, and they're observing them, and they're like, we're, we're doing all of this religious stuff, we're fasting to try to bring about the kingdom of God, and yet Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're not fasting at all. And they ask Jesus, well, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus responds in verse 19. It says, Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they do not fast, but the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and at that time, they will fast. And, and so, so what Jesus is saying here is, is he's saying, listen, I, I've already made the announcement. The kingdom of God, it's here. I've brought it with me. And so because of that, during this season, while I'm with you, spending time with you, there's no need to fast. Now is not the time to fast. Now is the time to party. It's time to celebrate because I'm here. And so this is Jesus' explanation for why his followers weren't fasting. He, he, he says at the end, he's like, listen, I'm gonna go again. He'll foreshadow it throughout the gospel of Mark his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And he said, when, when that time comes, it will be time for fasting again, albeit a different kind of fasting. But for right now, in the story that we read in Mark 2, Jesus is like, it's not time to fast. It's time to party. It's time to celebrate. Essentially, here's what's being communicated in these first couple of verses. Jesus changes everything. The arrival of Jesus, his presence, and the work that he was doing, listen, it changes everything. It changes everything. We've talked about this a bit already, but with the arrival of Jesus, everything changed. Concepts of who God is and what he does and who he spends time, time with, the, these ideas that people held, the old ways of thinking and living and doing things were being disassembled and brought back together in new ways. This new day had dawned with the arrival of Jesus. The kingdom of God had arrived and certain people during Jesus' time were reluctant to embrace this change while others were eager to jump on board. And, and we see this even today. Some of us here dread change. We hate change. While others of us, we are excited. We are energized by change. And there's been a ton of research on the nature of change and a lot of ink spilled on, on how we change and our response to change. And we could go down that rabbit trail today. But, but, but for the sake of time, we're going to stick to our text and see what Jesus has to say about change. And I just want to highlight three things this morning. Three things. The process of change, our response to change, and our hope for change. Three things. And so first, the, the process of change. So, so Jesus goes on here at the end of this little section in verse 21, and he says some things that might be a little confusing to us. He says this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, 
the new from the old, and the tear becomes worse. And, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, the new wine is poured into new wineskins. And so, what is going on here? What, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, simply put, here's, here's, what, here's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus' new way is incompatible with the old way. That's it. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and in order to communicate this, Jesus is using two kind of mini parables or two analogies that would have been relevant to the people of his time to communicate this idea that the new thing that Jesus brings is incompatible with the old. And the first thing he talks about is cloth. And the analogy that he creates is you've got this old weathered piece of cloth that's been shrunk from being out in the sun and, and, and all of that. And it's got this big tear in the middle. And he's like, you would never replace that tear in the middle with a new piece of cloth because as that new piece of cloth begins to age, it's going to rip away at the cloth and it's going to make a worse hole. Again, simply put, the new thing is incompatible with the old thing. The other comparison that Jesus makes is wine skins. Now, we don't put our wine in wine skins anymore. We put it in uh, bottles, and if you're really fancy, you get it in a box and stuff like that. But, but back, back then, it was in wine skins. And, and Jesus' point here is that like old wine skins uh, had, had, had been molded and shaped and expanded because of the fermentation of the wine inside of it. And if you were to put new wine in those old wine skins, as that new wine fermented, it would, it would cause those wine skins to explode. And so not only would you use the, lose that old wine skin, you would lose the brand new delicious wine inside, which in these parts in Woodenville, that's close to like the unforgivable sin, right? to lose wine. The new thing is incompatible with the old thing. And so when Jesus has, so, so Jesus has arrived, he's doing something new, and it's not compatible with the old, which brings us to this idea of the process of change. The process of change. And so the Pharisees and their followers, and John the Baptist and his followers, they were living in an old reality, especially the Pharisees. And their reality and their process of change over time had devolved into this idea that you were made righteous by the things you did and by how well you did them. And, and while ultimately, listen, there was nothing wrong with their actions and their practices and even how they did them, the problem was they made their practices the main thing. All of the emphasis was placed on these outward practices and how faithful you were to do them and how well you did them. And, and maybe we do this, maybe we don't, but I think all of us, we can embrace this kind of mindset in our lives. We're, we're good, or at least we feel better, if we do certain things. Like I, I read my Bible today, check. Uh, I, I tithed this month, check. I went to church this week, check. Or I didn't swear this much, that much this week, check. You know who you are. <laughs> we have this rolling list, this inventory that we keep of all of our actions and we evaluate like how well we're doing based on that list of things. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, he became the standard of righteousness. And, and, and with him, he brought this new process of change that wasn't focused on externals. It was, it was a different process of change. It was an inside-out version of change. 
It concerned itself not with externals and what you did, but it concerned itself with our hearts and our hearts being made new and a transformation process that started on the inside and made its way out. This process of change is what Jesus calls new wine. And it requires new wineskins. Old wineskins, old ways of thinking and living and, 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 and doing life, operating, it won't work. What we have to understand is our lives are like old wineskins. They're like old wineskins and each and every one of us, our lives have been shaped by the world around us, but by, by experiences and events, by friends and by family members, good and bad. All of these things have shaped us, who we are and who we're becoming. And so when we encounter Jesus and when we surrender to Jesus, we're given new wine. We're given new life, a new way of thinking and living and operating, a new way of, of thinking about who God is and reality. But when we try to fit him, when we try to fit this new life, this new wine into our old ways of living, into old wineskins, we, we find that we grow frustrated. We, we experience tension and a challenge and friction because this new life, this new wine, just isn't compatible with old ways, with the old way that we lived, with our old wineskins. Remember, the new thing is incompatible with the old thing. Our old wineskin, our old ways of living are no longer compatible with what Jesus has on offer for us. And so he has to bring renewal. Jesus has to bring transformation and change to our lives, to our old wineskin. He has to give us new wineskins. And again, this happens from the inside out through a process of ongoing surrender and it happens throughout life. We never find ourselves arriving at a completed state this side of eternity. It keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And sometimes it's difficult, it's painful, it's, it's hard, there's friction and tension. And so, so I want to talk about our response to this, our response to change. You know, one of our natural responses to change, probably the most common, is fear. We're fearful of change. We, we grow afraid of change because change can be unsettling because at our core, deep down inside, all of us love to have a sense of control over our lives. And change disrupts that. Change can even make us feel incompetent because there's always something new to learn, a new way to grow, and so we resist that. And so I wanna ask all of you this morning, in what areas of your life is that happening right now? Where are you afraid? Where are you frustrated? Where's there tension? What's that situation in your life that you're avoiding? Who's that person in your life that you're avoiding? What's posing a challenge to you right now? What's causing that sense of friction in your life? I, I ask you those questions because those very points of tension and frustration and conflict and challenge are probably the very points of contact in your life with the work of Jesus as he gently draws you further and further into a place of change into a place of surrender, into a place of openness so you can receive his new work, so you can receive the new wine that he has for you in your life. And listen, we can respond to this work in our lives, Jesus' work in our lives, in one of two ways. We can reject it, 
or we can surrender to it. You can reject it or you can surrender to it. And rejecting it, it, it might be easier now. It might make more sense in the moment. But by rejecting the potential transformation that, that Jesus can uh, work in your life in those situations, we reject his new life. We reject his new wine that he would pour into our lives that would reshape us and transform us. And so as painful and difficult as the change might be in the moment, when we surrender to Jesus in those moments, in those seasons of fear and friction and challenge, we're slowly but surely being renewed and readied to receive a new way, to receive a new life from Jesus. And, and, and again, this, this change isn't easy. It's difficult, but it's worth it. And we have hope. We have hope. And that's the last thing I want to talk about today, our hope for change, our hope for change. But before we do that, uh, one last quick story. Um, change is something we experience not only as adults, but as kids as well. And so on this Arbor Kids Day, I thought it'd be good to tell one more story uh, about me and my childhood and a time where I encountered change. And this is an unpleasant story, uh, but it's a story about me and, and my struggle when I was a kid with, with telling the truth and being honest and being sneaky and stealing things. You see, in our home growing up, my mom would buy these absolutely delicious chocolate mint cookies. And they were fancy cookies. And they were just for mom, right? Moms, do you have those treats hidden up in a cabinet somewhere that are just for, and not in like a selfish way, in a, in a like, I'm in a crazy household with crazy kids. Can I have one nice thing for myself kind of way, right? And so my mom had these cookies and they were delicious. Now, occasionally, my mom would let me have a taste or even a, a whole cookie and they were so delicious. But like I said, they were off limits. Was not allowed to touch them or have them. And it wasn't like she was being super stingy. She bought us cookies. She bought us those like junky Girl Scout Thin Mint knockoffs that Keebler makes. The, I think they're called grasshoppers, right? You know those cookies? She would buy us those. And, and so we did have cookies, but they were just not as good as her cookies. So, so one day, my six or seven-year-old mind devises this incredible plan. And I, think, and I think to myself, here's what I'm gonna do. While my mom is distracted with kids one day, I'm gonna go into the refrigerator where she kept them. I'm gonna snag a couple of those Keebler elf cookies. I'm gonna take some of her cookies out, replace them with the Keebler elf cookies, and she's going to be none the wiser as to what's been going on. So one afternoon, while she was busy doing something, I engaged the plan, and I executed it flawlessly. And I went down into the basement, into some hidden corner, and I ate a couple of the cookies, and I was, I was in heaven. I was like, this is it. This is it. Until later that night, I heard my mom say, Ryan Christopher, which you know it's bad when you get the middle name too, right? And I ran upstairs because I thought to myself, well, something must be going on. It can't be that she found out I took some of her cookies because it'd be impossible at this point, right? And so I get into the kitchen and lo and behold, there is my mom standing next to the refrigerator with her box of cookies in her hand. And we went on to play a game of one of these things is not like the other at that point. <laughs> and I remember uh, getting in trouble, obviously, but also being confronted with the importance of, of being honest and of not stealing. And in that moment, as I talk with my mom as to how only Jesus could help me with those things, 
with his inside-out way of bringing about change. And I, and I wish I could say that at that moment, six or seven years old, I learned my lesson, and there were no more lessons to learn beyond that, but there have been plenty of lessons beyond that on that specific topic. The process of change, it takes time. It's difficult, it's lifelong, and sometimes it's painful. And so we need a source of hope that, that will keep us moving forward and, and continue to help us embrace change. And I don't know how else to put this, but our only source of hope in our change is Jesus. He brings about the change. Only he can reshape our lives into new wineskins. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can reshape us so that we can hold this new life that he has in store for us. And so as we persevere throughout our lives, trying to embrace change so that we would grow to become more and more like Jesus, would we look to our source of hope? Would we keep our hearts and our minds fixed on Jesus, who the writer of Hebrews calls the pioneer and perfecter of our faith? Would we keep our hearts and minds fixed not only on Jesus, but on the promises that he has made for us with respect to our transformation and our growth and change? Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus promises that he will finish what he started. It's not going to happen overnight. It will take time. It's sometimes painful, but he will finish it as we continue to partner with him. So don't give up. Galatians 6, 9 says, so we must not grow weary in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not give up. Don't quit, do not give up, keep going. Because embracing change is essential for growth. Change is at the epicenter of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Change is not the wide, easy road, it is the narrow, difficult road. It's the way many of us aspire to live, but very few of us do. And so the final question I'll leave all of us with this morning is this. Will you continue to live an ordinary, unchanged life or will you take Jesus at his word? Will you continue to follow him? Will you embrace change, experience growth, and the new life that Jesus has for you? Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you reshape us and that you mold us, that you take our old wineskins and you transform us. You give us new life. You transform our hearts and minds so that we can receive your new wine, that we can be transformed and experience new life. And so Jesus, I pray right now, would you encourage us and strengthen us? Would you remind us that you will finish what you started? Would you help us to, to press on and to continue on? Or would we not quit? Or we wanna see you in all your glory. And so Father, I pray that you would give us endurance and perseverance Help us to embrace change so that we can grow. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.